Now, congregation, just by way of introduction, I looked at the calendar, the preaching schedule, and I realized that there are only two more weeks of ordinary time, and after that, we move right into the season of Advent. So as I was thinking about whether or not I should just continue in the Gospel of Mark, line upon line, in expositional fashion, or if I wanted to switch over to some sort of topical study, um, you can see I landed on the topical study um, answer, option. So today you can see that uh, we are not in the Gospel of Mark, but instead, if you look at the title of the message, it has to do with biblical ethics. And if you look at that title, it says Biblical Ethics 1. And that's there to indicate that perhaps over time we will return to this topic, but at least for this week and next week, we'll be covering the topic of biblical ethics. Now, if I could change or slightly revise the title that's in the, uh, the order of worship, I would, I would entitle this message, The Pattern of Biblical Ethics, The Pattern of Biblical Ethics. And the thing I want to focus on today is that as we live the Christian life, you and I should see God's law from the perspective of God's grace in Jesus Christ. As we live our lives as Christian people, we should see God's law from the perspective of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I think that is something that we need to understand is that I think most of us, just by nature, sort of relate to God's law in a very unhealthy way. And we read through the scriptures, we see God's law, and we relate to that law. We respond to his law in a very unhealthy way. In fact, I would venture to say that most of us think about God's law in this way. The first thing that comes to mind is that his law is just a long list of do's and don'ts, a long list of rules and regulations, and that these rules and regulations were given to us so that we might somehow earn or maintain God's favor. Now tell the truth, even though we understand intellectually the gospel of God's grace, when we are faced with his law, we assume that we can keep his law as a way of earning or maintaining God's favor. Most Christians think that way without even giving it a second thought. It's sort of a knee-jerk reaction as we interact with the Word of God. It's almost as if we assume that if we keep God's law, God will love us, and that if we stumble and we fail to keep God's commandments, then, of course, God will take his love away. Well, in this message today and in the next message next week, I want to show you why that's the wrong way to look at the scriptures. I want you to see that from a number of different passages. And so if you brought your Bibles with you today, I'm going to do a little bit of teaching. We're going to do a little bit of turning from this passage to that passage. We're going to walk through the scriptures and I'm going to show you in a couple of different places why that mentality is wrong. Okay, now as we begin today, and before we actually get to the text itself, let me give you somewhat of an outline, sort of a roadmap of where we're going. So if you're taking notes, you can write down these three things, these three points. In this message, here's what we're going to do. Number one, I want to give you the pattern of biblical ethics from the previous context. I'm going to give you the pattern of biblical ethics from the previous context. 
The second thing I want to do is show you that this is also the pattern that we find in the text itself. So when we get to our passage, we see the same pattern. And then finally, the third thing is I want to show you that this is the only pattern for biblical ethics in all the word of God. There is one pattern and one pattern only. So let's begin with the pattern itself. Let me just give it to you. I will tell you that from the very beginning, when God created man and placed man in the garden, God gave man his law, but he gave it to him in the context of grace. So God gave man his law, but he gave it to him in the context of grace. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, and I want to show you how this really works out uh, from the text of Scripture. Beginning in verses 7 and 8, I want you to notice, first of all, that God gave Adam the grace of life. What could Adam have possibly done to earn the grace of life itself? He wasn't even created yet. But God gave to Adam the grace of life itself. Verses 7 and 8, And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I think that's very clear. Now notice also that in addition to the grace of life, God gave Adam the grace of purpose. He didn't just create man and then turn him loose, but he gave him a sense of purpose. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 now, the Bible says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. So God gave Adam the grace of purpose. He gave him a job. He gave him a vocation, a calling, a purpose. And notice at the end of that, it says that he told Adam that he could eat freely of any of the trees in the garden. So God gave him the grace of abundance. God was not stingy. God was gracious. He gave Adam more than he could have ever needed in this moment. But then also see that he gave him the grace of companionship. The grace of companionship in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And then in verse 22, you hear the story of it. He puts Adam to sleep, a deep sleep. And then he opens up his side and he pulls out a rib and miraculously creates the woman. Verse 22 says, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So what has God done so far? What has God done? Well, he gave man life. He gave him purpose. He gave him abundance He gave him companionship, and it was in that context. You have to understand this is a context overflowing with the grace of God, but it was in that context that God gave man one tiny little command. He gave him a piece of law. After telling the man that he could eat freely from all the trees that were in the garden, he only added, except for this one tree. It says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when you think about it, you can see that from the very beginning, there's a pattern to the ethics of the Bible. And that is that God 
gives us his law, but he gives it to us in a context of grace. Is that clear? God gives us his law, but he gives it to us in a context of grace. One theologian put it this way. Listen to what he says. This is the starting point for the moral teaching of the Bible. God takes the initiative in grace, and then he communicates to us his will. From this perspective, biblical ethics becomes a matter of response and gratitude within a personal relationship, not a matter of cold and blind obedience to rules or adherence to timeless principles. Now, as we fast forward to to our text for today, it's important that we keep that pattern in mind because the fact of the matter is that what we saw with man in the garden, that is the pattern that continues uh, to move forward. This, This pattern never changes. As you follow the biblical narrative, you know there's a lot of places where the story goes up and down. There's a lot of ways in which man rises and falls. But in all of this, The history of mankind is marked by the grace of God. Okay? So we go from creation to the fall. We go from the fall to the process of redemption. In all of this, the pattern stays the same, and I'll show you how. In our text, God is getting ready to give the people his law on Mount Sinai. This is going to be the Ten Commandments. And what we find is that, once again, he gives that to them in a context of grace, only this time it's different. This time it's, it's a little bit different because now it's not just the grace of creation that man has experienced, but now it's the grace of redemption that man has experienced. And that's significant. That's very, very important because any context of redemption and salvation means that man is in a position of a debtor. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, they were sinless. They were blameless In the beginning, Adam had never done anything wrong. And so in one sense, maybe you're reasoning with the text and you're saying, well, the reason we see so much grace in the garden is that God was giving Adam what he deserved. Adam was a righteous man at that point. So God was treating him accordingly. But when you think like that, then you demonstrate you really don't understand the grace of God. As you look at our text, what you find is, It wasn't just in the context of creation that God gave grace first and then the law, but instead what we see is he does the very same thing even in a context of redemption, where man is no longer sinless. Man is full of sin. Man is no longer blameless, but he's worthy of blame. And so rather than knowing and loving God, man is selfish. Man is evil to the core. Man is an idolater. Man is in rebellion. And it's in this context that God demonstrates that the pattern of biblical ethics still doesn't change. Watch how this works. Let's look at our text and see how this comes out. We're looking at Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. I want you to note the following observations. First of all, I want you to notice that in Exodus chapter 19, God has not yet given the people his law. He hasn't done that yet. That won't come until three days later. It'll come, we'll see that in Exodus chapter 20, where Moses goes up into the mount and he receives the Ten Commandments and he brings it down to the people. So first of all, uh, the people have not yet received the law. The second thing we need to see is that in preparation for the giving of the law, God wants the people to have the right perspective. 
So what does he do? He reminds them that at this very moment, they are currently living in a state of grace and salvation. Look at how that comes out in verses three and four. There it says, and Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, as you think about that, you have to ask the question, when these people heard those words, What were some of the things that came into their minds? Uh, Here are a couple of examples of things that come to my mind as I think about the Exodus story. First of all, God showed them grace in the fact that he sent them a deliverer. God sent the people a savior in the person of Moses. So here they were, they were living in bondage to Egyptian slavery. And then one day, God, on the basis of his own grace and love for his people, sends them a deliverer. That's the first thing that could have come to mind. Also, another thing that could come to mind is that God had spared them from the plagues of Egypt. How many plagues did God send on the land of Egypt? Ten plagues. Destroyed the entire land. And right here, you need to to know something. When God goes to judge Egypt, one of the ways that he describes that judgment is by saying that he's going to topple the idols in the land. God is going to make war with all of the false Egyptian gods. He's going to topple the idols of the land. But guess what? What you might not know is that the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, were just as guilty of idolatry as the Egyptians were. They were engaging in the worship of Egyptian gods. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 20. That's the whole reason in the Decalogue why God begins with put away those foreign gods. And of course they didn't, they continued, and there you have the golden calf and all of that. But here's here's the key. What they knew was that practically speaking, they were no different than the people of Egypt. And yet God, on the basis of his own grace, this is grace and mercy and love, he spared them from all the plagues that he poured out on the Egyptians. He distinguished his people from the rest. There was light in the land of Goshen, And the plague of the firstborn missed them because of the Passover. Another thing that these people, as they're listening to the words of God, could be thinking in this moment is, yes, we remember how God bore us on eagles' wings and brought us to himself. God washed away our sins and God fed us with heavenly food. When did God wash the people? He washed them when he baptized the whole nation in the Red Sea. And of course, when did he end up feeding them? He fed them with manna when he gave them water from the rock. And the Apostle Paul says that that rock was Christ. And so here, when the Lord says in verse 4, you saw what I did to those Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, you have to know exactly what he's doing. In preparation for the giving of the law, the Lord is putting everything in its proper perspective. And I say that because if you think about all the different things that the people might have been remembering at this moment, you realize that there's one thing that would have never crossed their minds. There's one thing that would have never entered into their minds. And what is that one thing? 
It would have never entered into their minds that God had done any of those things for them because they somehow deserved his love, that they somehow deserved his grace and redemption. That would have never crossed their minds. And here is why this message is so important for us. It's because today that's the way a lot of Christians live their lives. Because they don't understand the relationship between grace and law, they just assume that if they want God to love them or keep loving them, they have to earn his love or secure his love by their obedience to his law. But you'll notice that in our text, there's no room for that kind of thinking. As you look at the way God presents the law, you can see that the one thing he wants us to learn is that his love is unmerited love. His grace is unmerited grace. And you can see that because after he reminds the people of how he already saved them, he goes on in verse 5 to say, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Notice the therefore. Because I've already saved you, now I'm putting you in a position and I'm saying, therefore, keep my word, obey my commandments, and don't break my covenant. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to see with that right there, because that almost sounds like it's contradicting what I'm saying, because it's conditional. If you keep my words, then you'll be my special people. But when God says that the people would be a special treasure and regarded above all other peoples of the earth, he's not talking about salvation, and he's not talking about the nation as a whole. I want to show you those two points. He's not talking about salvation, and he's not talking to the nation as a whole, okay? Now, let's, let's look at those two points. First of all, he's not talking about salvation, and the reason we know that is that he has already saved them. That's the whole point. He already delivered them from Egypt. He already... He already opened up the Red Sea and brought his people through. And when their enemies were pursuing them, he already closed the sea on top of them and drowned all of Pharaoh's army. God has already saved them. And that's why the sequence of events is so important. God didn't give the law of of Moses. He didn't give the law to Moses on Mount Sinai years earlier when he met Moses on the back of Mount Sinai through the burning bush. Remember, Moses was on the back of Mount Sinai. Your Bible will say Mount Horeb, but that's the same as Mount Sinai. And Moses is there tending to the sheep, and God speaks to him out of the burning bush. And he doesn't say, here, Moses, take my law, go down into Egypt, give it to my people, and tell them that if they keep my law, then I will deliver them from the land of Egypt. He doesn't do that. He says, I have heard the cries of my people, I have remembered my covenant with their father Abraham, and I'm sending you to go down and deliver them by my power and by my grace. That's exactly the sequence of events. So now here they are in Exodus 19, having already been delivered. Okay? Now, that raises a question. If God isn't talking about salvation, then what is he talking about here? that they'll be his special people and treasure. In what other way can they be a special treasure to the Lord? And the answer here is very simple. God is talking about the role that his people would play in the history of redemption, okay? That's important to grasp. 
um, we might say he's talking about service and not salvation, okay? You can see that if you look at verse 6, what follows this, because there the Lord identifies the privilege that the people would have to maintain. There's a privilege that they would have to maintain. If they would obey his voice and keep his covenant, then he would use them in the process of saving the nations. Uh, They would serve in what we can call a mediating role as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Okay, So they would mediate the relationship between the rest of the nations and God himself. They would be the mediating party, a nation of priests. And so here we can see that the privilege that was being held out was the privilege of being used by God in the process of international redemption. And just think about the Abrahamic promise. And so he's not talking about salvation when he gives them this conditional promise. He's talking about service, how they would be used by him. The second thing we can say is he's not really talking to the nation as a whole. He's not talking about the nation as a whole, but he's talking to each and every single generation of the people individually. This is why Israel's usefulness can either go up or down depending on how faithful that particular generation was. When, is, when a generation arose, repented, and came back to the Lord, he used them in mighty ways. But when the generation forgot about God, then he stopped using them in this mediating capacity. You see, God had already chosen the nation. He wasn't going back on that. He already gave his promise to Abraham, and that covenant was irrevocable. That's Galatians chapter 3. But also, in Romans chapter 11, Paul says that when it comes to the calling and the election of Israel as a nation, the gifts and calling of God are, again, irrevocable or irrevocable, if you like to pronounce it that way. I don't. And so, so here, you have to make sure that uh, everything is in its proper context. God is getting ready to give his law to the people, but before he does it, he wants to make two things clear. First, salvation is by grace and by grace alone. It's not by keeping God's law. Second, salvation is always for the purpose of knowing, loving, and serving God, okay, in whatever capacity he desires for us to serve him. God saved us so that we can serve him. And so the point here in verses five and six is that just because God saved us by grace alone doesn't mean that he now has to use us, especially when the life that we're living is contrary to his law. So there is an ethical principle here that we need to maintain. Now, so far, we've looked at the two major points, uh, the first two uh, in our outline. We looked at the pattern of biblical ethics. We went back to Genesis and to the garden in the previous context. Then we saw that the same pattern is found in the text that we're looking at today. But now as we begin to move towards wrapping things up, I want to cover the third point, and that is that when you look at the rest of the Bible, What you find is that this is the only pattern for biblical ethics in all the word of God. There's only one pattern, and this is what it is. Now, to show this, I want to read just a few passages from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. And these are passages that are clear. I think they're going to demonstrate the point. But just think of this message today as a fundamentals message. We're going back to the basics. If we don't get this, you can't really build your Christian life. Why? Because you're either going to be a legalist trying to earn God's favor or you're going to be an antinomian 
When you get fed up with trying to keep God's law and you can't, you're just going to say, eh, forget God's law, right? We have to keep this. So this is a fundamentals message. So from here, let's look at Exodus chapter 20. I think the best place to go is, first of all, just skip over a chapter so you can see the actual giving of God's law. God is giving his law in Exodus 20. And you'll notice that before he even mentions the first command, what does he do? He once again reminds the people of who he is and what he's already done. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. Here's what the Bible says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image, and so on. Now, notice a few points here that just come right out of the text. Notice, um, God doesn't just say, I am the Lord. But instead, he says, I am the Lord, your God. In other words, I have a relationship with you that is already established, and I haven't even given you my law. Okay? Another thing that we see is that God commands them to put away their idols on the basis of this previous relationship. It's as if he's saying the reason that you should put away the idols of Egypt and have no other gods before me and not make unto thee any graven images is that I am the one who delivered you from the house of bondage. That's why he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, as if to say, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. So you can see the pattern really doesn't change. The pattern is always there. It's grace first, then law. God gives us his law, but he always gives it to to us in the context of the grace. Okay, so let's skip ahead now to the New Testament where we see the same kind of thing in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Uh, If you were to take the whole book of Ephesians or the whole book of Romans and you outline the book, this is the pattern that you're going to see. In fact, during the order of worship, I was thinking, good thing I didn't go through Um, Ephesians, because we kind of read through it a little bit. But in Ephesians, the first three chapters is devoted to God telling us about all the grace that he's already given to us in Jesus Christ. And then starting chapter four, it's therefore I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called. Therefore, because of all that God has already done. But I want you to look at the book of Romans Because there you you see that the the whole book follows a very definite pattern, and the pattern is exactly the same. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul deals with the universal problem of human sin, or we can say the guilt of the human race. In chapters 3 through 11, he deals with the work of our redemption, the work of our salvation, the grace that God gives to those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? Broad outline. But then, beginning in chapter 12, and you can turn to Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul deals with the life that we're called to live as Christians. He begins to outline the gratitude that we should have in view of what God has done. So let's capture this pattern. The pattern, if you you will, is that we go from sin to salvation and then to service. Or if you want to keep the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, we can use three G's. We go from guilt 
to grace, and then to gratitude. So that our life of service is always out of a motive of gratitude for the grace that we've already been shown. But either way, what you notice there is that the ethical demands of the Christian life are based upon God's grace. It's because of God's mercy in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that he calls us to live in a certain way. It's because of God's mercy in the giving of the Holy Spirit that he calls us to live in a certain way. And it's because of the grace of calling the Gentiles into fellowship in the church that now you and I should love the Lord and obey God's commands. We should live the way that he wants us to live. Look at Romans 12. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 captures this very clearly. The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So notice the therefore, and notice Paul says that he's beseeching us, he's calling us on behalf or in view of the mercies of God. It's only really when you understand this, uh, this ethical pattern, the relationship between grace and law, that you can do a couple of practical things. Okay, so first of all, it's only when you understand this relationship that you yourself can live the Christian life in the way God wants you to live it. And that's not grudgingly. You know, the Apostle John says that his commands are not burdensome to us. Why? Because we recognize how much God loves us already. Right? So we can live the Christian life the way God wants us to live it. That's with joy and gratitude, enthusiasm, not dragging our feet, not acting like we're under a curse or dragging around a ball and chain. But no, we're doing it from a place of joy. Uh, the, other, the other thing that we can, we can do when we understand this relationship is we can learn to show this very same grace, this very same love uh, to those who are around us in our lives, okay? And this last point is really, really important because it applies to every area and every relationship that is, that is represented in our lives. And when we realize that God has saved us by grace and by grace alone, that God has loved us with an unconditional love, it's then and only then that we can treat people that he puts into our lives in the same way. In the same way. If we're legalists in our relationship to God, we're going to be legalists in our relationship with other people. If we're antinomian in our relationship with God, well, then we just become libertarians. We're antinomian with regard to however society wants to function because who cares about law? But when you're a Christian and you understand the relationship between grace and law, then you can learn to love and treat the people that God puts into your life in the very same way that God has treated you. Now, of course, this goes for husbands and wives. Think about the grace you need to show each other. It goes for parents and children. It goes for bosses and employees. It goes for everything. And the key here is to make sure that you love with the love of Christ. Okay? So that no one ever gets the impression that uh, you just need them to live up to your own expectations first, and then you will love them. If you would just 
live up to my expectations, then, well, maybe then I can love you. That's not the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're doing it like that, then according to the pattern that we've seen in God's word, you're doing it all wrong. And so as we go our way today, let us remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, most importantly, in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Then he says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his own life for his friends. And so congregation, in these words, Jesus is reinforcing the pattern of biblical ethics as he calls us to love one another. And by loving one another, he means to fulfill the law. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. We love one another by keeping God's commandments toward one another. But as he calls us to love one another and so fulfill the law of God, he wants us to be very clear on this point. That he's giving us this command in the context of grace. Jesus has already loved us. And now he's calling us to respond to that by loving him and by loving one another as well. Amen.